Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. For the life of Solon, we returned to Athens, where we started the podcast and learned about Theseus, the hero who the Athenians celebrate as their founder, because he ended the tribute to King Minos of Crete, brought the people of Attica together, and established some of Athens' traditions and festivals. Yeah, not to mention slaying a minotaur and attempting to kidnap a wife of more than one occasion. Right. Theseus led a very eventful life, to say the least. And Chris, I'm excited to be moving forward and taking on the life of Solon today, because it means we are now moving into more solid Greek history. Unlike Theseus, who can be placed into the category of myth, and Lycurgus, who sits maybe halfway between man and myth, we can be pretty certain that Solon really existed, and when he existed. The year that Solon was appointed to arbitrate the differences of the Athenian people is most likely 594-593 BCE. I know you've been eager to get to some actual dates, Chris. Yeah, it, it feels good to hear an actual date, actually. Agreed. Now, Solon is considered one of the seven sages, or seven wise men, according to the classical Greek tradition. The earliest surviving list of seven wise men comes from Plato's Protagoras. Solon expressed his wisdom through poetry. Writing in prose was uncommon. It is said that Solon traveled widely in his younger days. Some say that Solon traveled purely to gain wisdom and knowledge. Others that he was a merchant, having come from a noble family whose wealth had ebbed, and so it fell to Solon to restore their fortune. For his part, Plutarch sees no shame in Solon possibly engaging in trade to restore his family's wealth pointing out that trade brings home the good things from other countries, increases friendship with their kings, and is a source of valuable experience. All very good points. Yeah, and it does seem that, like Lycurgus before him, Solon did learn much from his travels, which may have provided him with the objectivity and clarity to see what needed to be done in his own polis of Athens when it was later gripped by a crisis. Solon established a reputation for wisdom amongst the Athenians by offering sage advice in moments of crisis. At one point, the Athenians were determined to give up on a long war with the neighboring polis of Megara over control of the island of Salamis, which was situated in the Saronic Gulf, directly between the two cities. Solon wrote a poem urging the Athenians to renew the war and succeeded in changing public opinion. The Athenians decided to continue the fight under Solon's leadership and defeated the Megarians in battle. Solon also advised the Athenians to defend the neutrality of the oracle at Delphi against the Choraeans. On another occasion, when factionalism gripped Athens, Solon convinced members of one faction, the Cylonians, to submit to a trial by a jury of 300 citizens, and the Cylonians were banished, putting a halt to the strife. These actions combined to gain Solon widespread recognition as the wisest of the Athenians. Now, at this time, political power in Athens was dominated by an aristocracy of eupatriots, sons of good fathers. Ryan, you know that listeners can't see that you're making air quotes with your fingers. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay good fathers in quotation marks. Uh, the Eupatrids exercised power through controlling the annual office of Archon and through the council of the Areopagus, which was a group composed of ex-Archons. However, serious tensions had arisen between these powerful aristocrats and both the masses of poor citizens and the class of new rich who did not come from noble stock. Making the situation particularly untenable was the amount of debt which many individual Athenians had accrued, 
Many were being forced into slavery because they were unable to pay their debts. So it seems that, as it had in Sparta before Lycurgus's reforms were instituted, inequality in Athens had reached extreme levels. Yeah, and apparently something had to give. Yes. And as I mentioned, it was not just the poor that were dissatisfied. There were also those wealthy individuals who did not belong to the Eupatriot class, and so lacked power and prestige to go along with their wealth. Plutarch relates that the inequality and debt had many Athenians on the brink of open rebellion, writing that some, for no law forbade it, were forced to sell their children or fly their country to avoid the cruelty of their creditors. But the most part, and bravest of them, began to combine together and encourage one another to stand to it, to choose a leader, to liberate the condemned debtors, divide the land, and change the government. Then the wisest of the Athenians, perceiving Solon was of all men the only not implicated in their troubles, that he had not joined in the exactions of the rich, and was not involved in the necessities of the poor, pressed him to succor the commonwealth and compose their differences. And thus Solon was chosen as archon and given a mandate to arbitrate the differences between the classes and make new laws. Plutarch says that the rich consented to the choice of Solon because he was wealthy, and the poor consented because he was honest. Solon approached the task ahead of him with a great deal of pragmatism. He seems to have had an eye towards making changes that stood a good chance of withstanding the test of time, and so perhaps didn't go as far as he could have in correcting the imbalances in Athenian society. Plutarch writes that Solon was asked afterwards if he had left the Athenians the best laws that could be given. He replied, the best they could receive. Very well said. So what were these new laws that Solon instituted? Well, perhaps most important to the immediate situation was that he declared that all remaining debts should be forgiven, and the practice of enslaving a person who could not pay their debts was outlawed. This measure was called the sesekthea, the shaking off of burdens. This would allow those who had fled their debts to return home and reignite the moribund Athenian economy. Not surprisingly to anyone who follows modern politics, despite the obvious good sense of this measure, neither the rich nor the poor were happy with it. Plutarch writes that the rich were angry for their money, and the poor the land was not divided, and as Lycurgus ordered in his commonwealth, all men reduced to equality. So to the rich Solon had gone too far with this move, but to the poor he hadn't gone far enough. Isn't that the sign of a good compromise, though, that neither party is fully satisfied? Absolutely. And soon enough, the Athenians realized the good that the Sesecthea had accomplished, and urged Solon to continue with his reforms. And so next, Solon completely repealed the existing set of Athenian laws that had earlier been laid down by Draco, with the exception of the law regarding homicide. These laws were seen as being far too severe, and this is where we derive the modern English word draconian, which refers to rules that are excessively harsh. Plutarch says that Solon, quote, repealed all Draco's laws except those concerning homicide because they were too severe and the punishments too great, for death was appointed for almost all offenses, insomuch that those that were convicted of idleness were to die, and those that stole a cabbage or an apple to suffer even as villains that committed sacrilege or murder. So the Demades in aftertime was thought to have said very happily that Draco's laws were written not with ink but blood, and he himself being once asked why he made death the punishment of most offenses, replied, Small ones deserve that, and I have no hire for the greater crimes. Wow, well, I'm sure glad we don't follow that old legal system anymore. Agreed, yeah. In terms of political power, Solon allowed the Eupatriot aristocracy to retain a monopoly on certain offices, such as the priesthoods, but he opened up to the new rich access to the top offices, such as the annual archon, 
and thus the Areopagus Council, which was made up of exarchons. Solon gave to the masses access to an assembly called the Heliaea, which worked as a sort of court of appeal to dispute the decision of the officials, who, as we can see, still belong to the upper classes. Plutarch spends some time reviewing some of Solon's more odd and unique laws, such as the law concerning funerals and mourning, which forbid anyone from going too over the top. Plutarch writes that mourners tearing themselves to raise pity and set wailings, and at one man's funeral to lament for another, he forbade. To offer an ox at the grave was not permitted, nor to bury above three pieces of dress, or visit the tombs of any besides their own family, unless at the very funeral. Okay, so it sounds as if they sort of create like a, an appeals court? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, the Helie will, will function as an appeals court for the poor Athenian citizens who didn't have access to the, the offices. And Oh, very interesting. So Solon's laws also extended to the economic sphere. There were laws concerning where one could dig a ditch, plant certain crops, or locate their beehives. Solon's main concern, though, seemed to be around productivity. He recognized that the land of Attica was scarcely fertile enough to feed or employ a large population by itself. Plutarch says that for this reason, Solon encouraged the development of trades as another means of employment and wealth generation. Solon also forbid the export of any agricultural product except oil, in order to meet the needs of Athens first. One can imagine this made the smuggling of some products, such as figs, a lucrative proposition. It is said that the modern word sycophant, which we use to refer to someone who sucks up to those with power and authority, originated in Athens and referred to someone who ratted on these fig smugglers and informed the authorities. So anyway, Solon's laws were proclaimed to be in effect for the next 100 years and were displayed publicly on wooden tablets in the agora, or marketplace of Athens. Marketplace doesn't quite do justice to the Agora. The Agora was the heart of Athens, or any other Greek city. In years to come, a philosopher like Socrates could spend whole days in the Agora just questioning and conversing with others, so it was the center of Greek civic life. Placing Solon's laws here in the Agora on durable tablets was symbolic and gave people the sense that the laws were the purview of all Athenians, not just the aristocracy, and the laws were intended to last. Now, what Plutarch says happened next to Solon is interesting. He writes that, Now, when these laws were enacted, and some came to Solon every day to commend or dispraise them, and to advise, if possible, to leave out or put in something, and many criticized and desired him to explain and tell the meaning of such and such a passage, he, knowing that to do it was useless, and not to do it would get him ill will, and desirous to bring himself out of all straits, and to escape all displeasure and exceptions, it being a hard thing, as he himself says, in great affairs to satisfy all sides. As an excuse for traveling, he bought a trading vessel, and having obtained leave for ten years' absence, departed, hoping that by that time his laws would have become familiar. So basically, after the Athenians asked him to make new laws for them, they then badgered him so much to change or amend his laws that he had to leave the city for ten years to give his laws a chance of success? Wow, pretty ungrateful, eh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is somewhat reminiscent of when the angry mob attacked Lycurgus after he made the law obliging Spartan men to eat all their meals in the mess hall, and he ended up losing his eye. I guess showing bold leadership is never easy. Plutarch spends much of the rest of his life of Solon with retelling the great story from Herodotus's histories about Solon's meeting with the famous King Croesus of Lydia. I love this story, and it's funny that before launching into the tale, 
Plutarch basically says, it's possible this never happened, but it sounds right to me, and it's such a cool story that I can't leave it out. <laughs> As Plutarch puts it, that Solon should discourse with Croesus, something not agreeable with chronology. But I cannot reject so famous and well-attested a narrative, and what is more, so agreeable to Solon's temper, and so worthy his wisdom and greatness of mind. It's cool but questionable stories like this one that led many to call Herodotus the father of lies rather than the father of history. But we can't just skip it over. Plutarch sums up the story pretty well, but it's really best to go back to Herodotus for this one. Now, a little background here. The kingdom of Lydia was located in Asia Minor, and it grew rich from the abundance of a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver called electrum that was readily obtainable. It is said that the Lydians coined the world's first coins from this alloy, and by the reign of King Croesus, coins of unalloyed gold were being produced. King Croesus became the richest man in the known world, and his Lydian empire controlled all of Western Asia Minor. Herodotus tells us that while on his travels away from Athens, Solon visited the city of Sardis in Lydia and stayed at the royal palace of King Croesus. Now, Croesus had apparently heard of Solon and his reputation for wisdom, and he had his servants take Solon on a tour of his magnificent palace, pointing out his many treasures along the way. Afterwards, Croesus spoke with Solon and asked him essentially, who is the happiest man you have ever come across? Seemingly expecting Solon to choose him, King Croesus. After all, who was more wealthy or powerful than him? Solon's reply, however, was that it was an Athenian named Tellus, because he had lived during a time of plenty for the city. He had had handsome sons of good character, he was wealthy, and he lived to see all of his grandchildren reach adulthood. And after a good long life, he had died gloriously in battle, turning the tide in a fight against the Eleusinians. Croesus found this response interesting, but obviously it was not the answer he was looking for. So he asked, well then, who is the second happiest? thinking he would at least take second place. But Solon answered that second would be Cleobus and Biton, two young men of Argos. They were both exceptional athletes, and one day their mother needed a cart urgently brought to the temple during a festival in honor of Hera. There was no time to go and fetch the oxen, so the two young men pulled the heavy cart all the way to the temple themselves. Everyone was impressed with this feat and congratulated the mother on her strong and dutiful sons. Full of pride, the mother prayed before the statue of Hera that her son should receive the greatest blessing that can be bestowed upon a mortal. The sons then entered the temple and fell asleep, never to wake again, indicating that death is the greatest gift that a mortal can receive. You know, Ryan, I think I can think of some better gifts than that. <laughs> yeah, I can think of a few myself, yeah. Solon seems to reason that because the brothers died at the height of their happiness, they could truly be considered to, considered to have had happy lives. King Croesus, however, was infuriated by this answer, asking how his own happiness is not comparable to these men with no rank and title. Herodotus says that Solon responded by saying, quote, Now, to be sure, I can recognize that you are fabulously rich and that you are the king of a great number of people. And yet for all that, I will not be able to say about you what you are anticipating that I would say until I have learned that you died contentedly. Great wealth, after all, is no more guaranteed to bring a man happiness than his daily substance. Unless, that is, good fortune proves to be the rich man's constant companion, enabling him to keep all his blessings intact, and bringing his life to a pleasant conclusion. But just as there are many men of moderate means who enjoy the most wonderful luck, so there are many wealthy men who suffer repeated misfortune. No matter what, you must always look to the end, look to how it will turn out. For the heavens will often grant men a glimpse of happiness, only to snatch it away so that not a trace of it remains. This speech did not impress Croesus who dismissed Solon as nothing but a fool. However, soon afterwards, Croesus' blessed life took a turn for the worse. 
His son Addis died in a hunting accident, which left Croesus overwrought with grief for two years. Eventually, though, Croesus had to snap out of it, as a new power was rising to the east, which he felt he must confront. This was the rising Persian Empire, centered in the area of modern-day Iran. The Persians had been subjects of the Median king Astyages, but the man who would become known to history as Cyrus the Great led a successful revolt and conquered Media. He then sought to bring a closer union between the Medes and the Persians, and seems to have been successful in this venture. The Greeks, for their part, would come to use the words Medes and Persians interchangeably when speaking about the Persians. Croesus carefully considered what to do to respond to the rise of the Persian Empire, and decided he would consult an oracle. But not before first testing all of the different oracles to see which was accurate. He sent messengers out to all of the oracles, at Miletus, Dodona, the Temple of Amman in Libya, and of course the oracle at Delphi. Exactly 100 days after leaving him in Sardis, the messengers were directed by Croesus to ask what he was doing that day. Croesus chose a bizarre activity, which would be hard to guess. He boiled a lamb and a tortoise in a cauldron of bronze. That sounds really tasty, almost as tasty as the black broth we learned about in Lycurgus' episode, eh? <laughs> yeah, and pretty hard to guess uh, that he'd be doing that. Well, as it turns out, only the oracle at Delphi correctly answered the question. So Croesus' next move was to send magnificent treasures to Delphi to gain favor with the god Apollo, who spoke through the priestess there known as the Pythia. Croesus sent a statue of a lion made all of gold weighing ten talents, massive gold and silver bowls, and various other treasures to Delphi. I've always thought that if I could go back in time to visit a specific place, Delphi in classical times would be quite a sight. It would definitely be on my list anyways. Perched on the slopes of Mount Parnassus, the shrine must have been magnificent. Even the ruins that remain today are breathtaking. The various Greek cities sent treasures and made dedications there, the larger cities setting up beautiful little treasuries that look like miniature temples. It was popular for wealthy cities or individuals to make a dedication of some kind at Delphi after some momentous occasion, like a victory in battle or at the Olympic Games. The entire place was clustered with statues and temples, gold and silver. It's interesting to think of the amount of wealth there, belonging to no Greek city, and yet with few exceptions, no city dared violate the neutrality of the site and risk the fury of Apollo and the other Greek cities. Anyway, to get back to King Croesus, after determining that Delphi was the best oracle to consult, and having sent many gifts to the god Apollo, he then asked the question he really wanted answered. Should he go to war with the Persians? The answer he received from the Pythia was that if he crossed the river Halas, a mighty empire would fall. Croesus was encouraged by this oracle and marched his army across the Halas River and invaded the region of Cappadocia. Cyrus, for his part, gathered his forces and went to battle with the Lydians. The battle was a draw, with both sides taking heavy casualties, which came as a surprise to Croesus. He decided to withdraw his army back to Sardis for the winter, call on his various allies, and march out with a larger army in the spring to crush the Persians. Cyrus, however, did not play along with the strategy and marched his army directly to Sardis in pursuit of Croesus. The Lydians were surprised, but undaunted, and arrayed themselves for battle in front of the gates of their city, hoping that their superior cavalry might bring them victory. Herodotus says that once again the battle was fierce, and casualties were heavy on both sides. However, the Lydians eventually withdrew within the walls of their city. The Persians surrounded and laid siege to the city. But the Lydians were well supplied, and hoped that their allies would soon come and lift the siege. However, within two weeks, Cyrus's army was inside the city. 
Crack soldiers had scaled a poorly defended section of the wall and let the Persian army into the city. And so it turned out that the oracle at Delphi was correct, but not in the way that Croesus had expected. By going to the war with Persians, he had caused the downfall of a mighty empire, his own. I guess he should have, uh, you know, took that question a little further and asked uh, which empire was going to fall, right? Or... Yeah, definitely a follow-up question would have been helpful. Upon conquering the city of Sardis, Cyrus had a great pyre built and had Croesus placed on it. Seeing a fiery doom in front of him, Croesus thought back to that conversation years ago when Solon had told him that no man could be considered happy until they had died. Herodotus writes that Croesus standing there on top of the pyre and in the full consciousness of his ruin was suddenly reminded of a maxim that seemed to him now touched by an authentically divine wisdom. For it was the same maxim that had been pronounced by Solon when he had declared that no one living ranks as happy. The recollection of this prompted Croesus to sigh bitterly and utter a groan, and then breaking a long silence, he repeated three times over the name of Solon. Cyrus, overhearing him, ordered the interpreters to approach Croesus and demanded of him whom it was that he had been calling upon, which they duly did. Although Croesus refused to respond to their questioning at first, an answer was eventually dragged out of him. A man so remarkable, he said, that I would willingly have paid a fortune to ensure that every ruler in the world would be given the chance to listen to him. Cyrus was intrigued by what he heard, and after Croesus had told him this whole story of his encounter with Solon, Cyrus reflected on his own mortality, and the fact that if a man as powerful as Croesus could fall from power so quickly, perhaps the same thing could happen to him someday. And so he spared Croesus' life, and kept him around as an advisor of sorts. You're probably wondering, though, how things turned out for Solon in the city of Athens. Well, back in Athens, Solon's reforms, which were intended to create a more harmonious balance of power between the different classes, experienced what at first glance would appear to be a pretty significant setback. An ambitious and charismatic man named Pisistratus was able to seize all power and set himself up as a tyrant in Athens. However, as it turned out, Pisistratus was mostly just concerned with holding on to power for himself and his sons, and was content to leave Solon's laws alone for the most part, as long as he was successfully able to get his own people into the top offices. Plutarch says that Pisistratus, quote, having got the command, so extremely courted Solon, so honored him, obliged him, and sent to see him, that Solon gave him his advice, and approved many of his actions, for he retained most of Solon's laws, observed them himself, and compelled his friends to obey as well. In fact, as much as the years of the Pisistratid tyranny appear at first to be a step backward for the Athenian march to democracy, which Solon's laws had helped move forward. With the benefit of hindsight, one can see how this period of tyranny actually allowed Solon's laws to take root. With the backing of the Pisistratids, the Solonian constitution was able to take hold, and the period of political stability saw other important developments, such as the institution of the city Dionysia. The Dionysia was a festival in honor of the god Dionysus, which featured theatrical performances. This festival would end up producing powerful theater whose influence on the shaping of Western culture simply cannot be overemphasized. I hope to be able to talk more about Athenian theater in a later episode, but for now we'll just say that it got its official start during the Pisistratid tyranny. So at the end of Solon's eventful life, Athens is not yet a democracy, nor is it yet a polis to rival Sparta, but the wisdom of Solon had given Athens a solid constitution that would be crucial to the rapid development of the city in the century to come. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com 
or check out Plutarch's Greece and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're using. See you next time.